0: Welcome to Launch Your Wealth. Jonah Lemons here, your podcast host, real estate entrepreneur, and a mom of six talented kids. Thank you so much for tuning in. And once again, for being a big part of this podcast success. We have made it across the globe from Canada to the US, Germany, Norway, Russia, Italy, Singapore, Philippines, just to name a few. So grateful for the men and women listeners, as we all break barriers and take our professional and business development to the next level. If you are just hopping on, I recommend to check out the previous episodes in no particular order. It is to inspire the mindset growth, the entrepreneur life, real estate business and beyond. In today's episode, it is focusing on a very serious topic. However, It really is to just share our insight and our own experiences as we open this conversation on joint ventures versus syndication in real estate. Of course, this topic is quite complex. However, we in this discussion are all real estate investors and founders of our own real estate ventures, sharing a discussion and insight that can open the conversation even more. And it's really to inspire And hopefully you can learn a thing or two as you begin your real estate path and launching into this investing business in a new decade. My featured guests are Brian C. Adams, a recovering attorney and the founder of Excelsior Capital. Jerome Myers of Myers Methods, a real estate entrepreneur and mentor. Chris DeSell, a multifamily real estate investor, both passive and active today. We all share different takes and experiences that we aim to bring value to you. So come on in and let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Launch Your Wealth. This is an actual special edition series on real estate and everything beyond. And, you know, I have the pleasure to introduce Brian C. Adams, Jerome Myers, and Chris Desell right here on this panel discussion or conversation because it is an open conversation and we are introducing the idea of joint ventures and syndication because I'm sure many of the new investors, whether you're accredited or not, or don't have any experience, you're probably wondering, I want to hear it from someone who is real. Not just reading the books, not just typing it on Google and, you know, kind of going more in depth on your take. So I cannot be more than excited than this because I've got experts on this show. So welcome everyone. And, um, you know, I I just wanna kind of start it off and say, you know, what is joint venture and what is syndication? So let's start with, with Jerome, maybe, you know, say a few words and Brian and then Chris.
1: So joint ventures are Oh, man. My favorite way to describe this are joint ventures are fighter jets. So everybody in a fighter jet has a job. And a lot of people have gotten into this place where they're looking to be investors and they just want to put their money in. And once their money is in, they don't have anything to do with it. And they just wait for the project to be complete. They get their checks along the way and then they get a big check at the exit. For us, we like doing joint ventures where everybody has an active role and they participate in the operations along the way, have a voting right when it comes to making big decisions. And then, you know, we can pivot and adjust the business plan as needed so that we can get through the project successfully.
0: That's, yeah, that's as simple as you can, can make it to be. I mean, what what do you think with joint venturing? Is that something you would even suggest to someone that whether they have a lot of money or or so-so to kind of get in their feet in the door, so to speak, or is that something that you would say, get some experience first and kind of learn hands-on from just the smaller deals, whether you're doing it as an active investor or passively on a syndication?
1: I think it's a function of what you want. If you want to be a active operator, then I think joint ventures are the way to go because you're going to be able to check the experience box sooner because you have an active role. uh, You can ask to be underwritten with the bank, even if you don't own 20% of the property. And that is one of those key metrics is being underwritten by a bank and signing a loan that allows you to go do your own thing. I think a lot of people don't have the net worth and liquidity when they get started. And so they aren't able to go do their own deal, but if they can get the net worth and liquidity through committee by signing and then by signing a loan and checking that experience box for having signed a loan, then they get the opportunity. I hear a lot of people say, Hey, get experience by investing in a deal passively. But I don't know that that actually gets you operating experience. I think it gets you experience as a limited partner. And while having that customer experience may be good for you as an operator, I'm not sure that that gets you to the place where you are a good operator.
0: That's a really good point. And I think, Chris, you would have some insight on that because you're, you know, you've pretty much been doing this for about five years and you're hands on you know, when you're doing, you know, uh, property uh, acquisition slash, you know, doing the due diligence, etc. The, the the whole, I guess the whole insight on that is, you know, getting the experience as an LP or getting, getting the experience so you can get to the goals. That's sort of what I'm understanding. So, Brian, feel free to jump in and, and let us know, you know, your take on that too, because joint venture versus syndication. There's really no such thing as versus. I think what Jerome said is getting to the goal. So ultimately thinking big. And I know Chris, he, he likes the idea of always thinking big because there's always room for that growth when you're, you know, going into the real estate investing world. So, you know, feel free to, to jump in and, and share your insight on that. Chris? Yeah, to- I think,
2: I think Jerome's point is well taken. And just to kind of set Baseline here, when I talk about a syndication, um, the model that that I think most folks are familiar with, but maybe just to help identify a starting point would be a GP-LP relationship, right? Where you have the general partner who is the operator, the sponsor, they are running the deal, they are sourcing the opportunity, they are handling the asset, they are typically taking on the recourse liability themselves, and they have some kind of economic relationship with the LPs who are the limited partners and I tell people all the time who want to get into the business or maybe are new to investing, there is a reason you are called a limited partner. You are limited in your rights. You are limited in your obligations. When you look at the operating agreement or the PPM and you just do an apples to apples comparison about how big the GP portion is versus the LP portion, just on a page number basis, there, aren't, there isn't a whole lot to do as the LP. So you are along for the ride. You have some economic rights. But you do not have major decision-making rights. You have limited economic opportunities to influence the deal, um, and you very much are kind of putting your your card to the horse of the GP. And so, I think as Jerome Jerome pointed out, it's not really a matter of what's better or worse. It's what the outcome you want is, and what style of investment that you want to take on. For us, we have a, um, an investor base that they prefer to be passive investors. They have full-time jobs or they have enough assets under management where they don't need another, um, you know, major decision-making time on their calendar to to take up. And so for us, it just makes a lot of sense with our logical investor base and how we think about operating and executing on deals. Um, In particular, we've done JVs with large family offices that want to be, 90 to 95 percent of the um, equity in the deal and from that standpoint, I think it makes a whole lot of sense for them to have major decision-making rights, to have oversight rights, to to have representation on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. It has not always worked out well for us because there's conflict there, right? I mean one person thinks that we should go in this direction, the other person thinks that we should go in that direction. You have to go through tiebreaker um, type of analysis and And so I think it's really important before you go into either um, food group or either type of transaction, understanding what you want to accomplish as the GP, what you want to accomplish as the LP or kind of the operator investor, and then you go from there. But this is a really healthy conversation because I do think there are a lot of people out there who are burgeoning sponsors, aspiring operators, GPs that think, oh, if I can just get this big institutional LP to come in, it's going to solve all my problems. That's not always the case, right? I mean, there is a pro and a con to all these type of transactions and we're happy to, I'm happy to kind of go through some of those, but that's the way that I think about syndication And after doing this for 10 plus years. It's definitely the model that works for us and our investor base, but it's not for everybody.
0: Wow, that's, yeah, those are really good points. I mean, you know, how has it worked for you? I mean, did, was it the original plan for your company when you, cause I, I know more of your backstory, but you know, just kind of take us through that. Like what would be the pros and cons from your experience of 10 plus years?
2: Yeah, so it's, I don't want to kind of complicate the conversation further, but we actually started out in the fund business where you raise a, a pool of, of committed capital that is a blind pool. So people are basically saying, I like you as an operator, I think you're a talented sponsor, I'm going to commit to $100 and I understand you're going to call that money down over a period of time, and that I have a sense of the type of opportunities you're going to pursue, but I don't really know what they look like today. And that's a whole different animal that, that we could get into in a different conversation, but I came at it as a fund manager and frankly, after doing three funds, they're relatively small, no institutional LPs for the most part. I really thought the fund model was a poor product type and a poor investment vehicle for taxable investors who are high net worth individuals and family offices and private wealth management firms. And that's when we pivoted towards purely deal by deal syndication probably six years ago. And again, this is really all about, in my opinion, your logical organic investor base and what they want and what they're accustomed to. And for most of our LPs and investors, They were very familiar with the deal-by-deal syndication model. They had done it before. It checked all the boxes of what they wanted, and it solved their pain points. And that's how we we got there, basically because the fund model I thought wasn't working for our investor base. Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's your take, Chris? Well, one of the things.
3: Yeah. If you're going to be uh, so, if you're new to the investing game and and you want to learn from somebody, say if you want to come in to. uh, a a deal. uh, And I've had this conversation with Jerome before, but uh, come in as an LP, but tell the GPs that you want to learn, but offer some assistance. Say, hey, I can do financial analysis. I can go to that property and do do, due diligence. Something that uh, maybe you take a little uh, workload off of them so they can run, run you through their programs, their analysis, their thinking, so you can bring value to the team. So then the next time you come around um, you, you might be able to get on as a GP. And then fully know that w- when you're a, a general partner, you actually have to have an active role. So if you have a W 2 job where you're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and you can't do, you can't manage the property or you can't do you know, what a, a general partner does, then that doesn't bring any uh, uh, um, value to the team. So you're, you're and, and that, that's against the law. So, um, so you really have to know a lot of people come to me and say, Hey, I want to be a GP. So then I'm like, okay, what do you see yourself as? Right. And then they don't have that second, uh, thought process down because like one of the guys I know he's, he's great. He's crushing it and he works in IT and everything like that, but he's, he's been wanting to be a GP and he hits me up all the time, but he works like 80 hours a week. So like, but that's just not going to be uh, it's, it's not going to be a good fit for our team, for him and it's against the law. So you kind of kind of know that going in. so you can set up uh, your new team and your real estate team for success by knowing the rules so you don't violate the rules and then bringing some like it's got like a call to action what it is that you can participate as a general partner to suffice the whole team so everybody can uh, take down that deal in a proper manner. So it, uh, it works. Uh, going forward, so.
0: That's, that's really insightful, like, you know, making sure that you're following the law, like, that's, that's so important, so, because I've never been a GP and an LP, take, take us through quickly, you know, without, you know, kind of going into detail, what would be the criteria that you're, so, as an investor, and you're like, hey, I'm interested to, to go into this deal, what would be your best advice, Chris, for that pre-criteria to, to say, hey, this would be worth my time, my money, and and get into this real estate game, as we call it.
3: So if, if you wanted to be a limited partner, so you'd have to have whatever the minimum is for that said deal, right? Will there be 50K? Sometimes they're smaller, 25. Sometimes they're larger, 100, to buy into the fund. Uh, basically, for the most part, it's all works on about it. They, they, uh, Brian, you can uh chime in here i think it's a $1000 per share right about the sec regulation so everybody percentage wise is paid out um uh per share so like if somebody comes in with like a million dollars and then i come in with like 100 we're percentage wise we're paid out the same so uh that's correct right earth something like that
2: yeah i mean um <laughs> I no longer practice law, so I do not give legal advice. I don't carry my practice any longer. But yeah, I mean, people, if they have requested most favorable nation status, um, and they have requested that there be no side letters, that people must be paid out their percentage per rata per the operating agreement. So,
3: Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was uh, uh, going down that right path. So then... So then if you have, uh, let's say, you, you you, know, in your W-2 job, you're, you're actively like uh, Jerome actually ran um, a pretty big engineering firm with, I think, 180 employees, so uh, maybe more. So like uh, he would be a perfect partner because he could run our four-person staff at said property because if he was able to manage 180, um, you know, certainly he could do four. And then, um, you know, we have a team meeting and we discuss, The boundaries and the rules and you know uh, all all the steps necessary to to turn around that property so he could manage that aspect while maybe i manage the you know the fund or or something else you know we'd have to set up that agreement when you go in so something along those lines that you'd have to go down that road so because it's kind of like a marriage and you guys can uh, chime in two years because uh, I think uh, once you said let's say Jerome and Brian and I all want to partner together you know we're going to be talking weekly daily for the next four or five years to make sure that uh, we're all in alignment to make a successful syndication.
0: Right I mean you know it, it is a it's a complex topic to cover in a short period of time but you know let me, let me go through some questions. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. So um, JV, GPLP, no particular order. Um, what core values would be needed in a JV? What type of investment goals should that person be thinking about before going into a JV? Um,
2: Uh, I would echo Chris's comment that, um, when you're going into a joint venture, I think you need to be even more thoughtful about how you paper the agreement and how you divvy up responsibilities, because there are going to be a lot of cooks in the kitchen. It could be up to three to four to five people. And most likely if you're doing this as a first deal, an opportunity is brought to you by a property manager, and then you have the money person, then you have the operator, and then you have somebody with maybe a finance background, mm-hmm. and you need to be, I think, really um, judicious about what roles and responsibilities each person has, and where those tie breaks come in, so that if the property manager and the finance person disagree about uh, taking out a new loan or selling, what does that mechanism look like? Because The best way to ruin a friendship is to start business together in my experience and opinion. And the better friends you are, probably the more thorough you have to be about papering the agreement properly and having independent counsel represent each of you to come up to one document, because those deals can really work. But you're also talking about a lot of personalities in one room. Um, So that would be my two cents on that.
0: The personality and the, the mentality could change along the way, you know, personal things can happen and, you know, that can affect it too. So that's, that's a really good take. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the joint venture, Jerome, what's your, what would be your, um, you know, simple advice, like core values and, you know, what, what that person should be thinking about as far as their investment goals, you know, how would you outline that?
1: Yeah. So I'm gonna make it complicated, then come back to simple. I enjoy <laughs> put people in saying hey uh joint ventures are better than jvs and people kind of twist their face and look at me Uh, the general partnership or the general partners are the same thing as a jv
0: yeah.
1: right so when you're talking syndication and joint venture just remember that that entity is the same regardless of what you're doing the syndication just has the lps the limited partners that are providing capital to allow the general partners to do what they're going to do versus the joint venture partners are bringing the cash and it's all rolled up into one. So now going back to joint ventures in particular, I look for a few different things and mainly because I went through the school of hard knocks. Um, the first is, do our values aligned? Whatever the values are, are our stated values aligned? What we look for is people who wanna make an impact with their investment. Um, part of the reason why I dropped out of corporate America was because I didn't want to be beholden to shareholders anymore. And it's part of the reason why syndications are a turnoff for me. The limited partners are putting their money in the deal because they want the maximum return on investment. And there may be points along the way where the short-term return on investment isn't the right long-term decision for the property. And I didn't want to be in that. We got to make our quarterly projection situation when I know that I can do a three X multiple overall on the deal, on the exit if we love on the property a little bit more right now Mm. to foster goodwill and improve the community. Um, The second thing that I look for is some longevity, some real understanding of who the person or people are that I'm partnering with. A lot of the people that I've done deals with so far, I've known back to high school or college, usually we have a track record of over a decade. I've been able to see them perform in different environments, understand how they handle stress, and know one thing that's super important. Is it always somebody else's fault? If it's always somebody else's fault, then it's gonna be my fault when we get into a deal together and I don't wanna do business with that person. But if I know that they are one of those extreme ownership type of people like I am, they're willing to do whatever it takes in order to make sure that we're successful, then I'm willing to do that. And the example I use is my buddy Daron, who I went on started this journey with back when we were in college. Um, being on a quarterly call with him about what's going on at the property. And we're going through the operational expenses and saying, what do we need to do for the next quarter? And he said, man, that lawn care bill is pretty high. Do I need to bring my lawnmower down and start handling that piece of it just so we, we're not spending that money? And I told him it would be an abysmal failure if he was spending his time that way, but he was absolutely willing to do that. And it's just that type of, willing to roll up your sleeves and get some dirt under your fingernails and grit that I'm looking for because I don't care what anybody tells you there's something that's going to go wrong that you didn't plan for along the way and I want to know that the person that I'm in the deal with or the people I'm in the deal with are willing to get buckets when that hole pops up in the boat and they're going to get water out the boat with me until we can get back to shore. If I feel like I'm on my own, I might as well do the deal on my own and stop giving away equity. And so those are kind of the high level things that we look for when we're talking to people about being joint venture partners.
0: And, you know, you you really like pointed out a, a lot of good stuff there because, you know, it's common sense, right? Like align the the core values, get to know the person. But what's usually the the scenario when you're you know, creating the partnership? Is it usually 50-50 on that equity? Like, or or is it something that they have to negotiate with you in the process?
1: Every deal is different. And I mean, a lot of our deals honestly look very much like a syndication. We hold back a piece for the person that found the deal. We hold back for people who signed the loan because everybody doesn't have to sign the loan. But for those people who do, and a lot of what we've done so far has been recourse loan. And so when you're putting up your personal balance sheet up as collateral for something that we're doing, um, I feel like they deserve some equity. And I don't value the cash as much as a lot of other people do. If you're a person that has high net worth and liquidity and you're coming to the table, you want to be rewarded for having that. And it's pretty easy for you to say, well, if you don't have the money, you, you can't do the deal. And I sit on the other side of the table and say, well, if you don't have the deal, your money isn't going to be put to work and you're not going to be able to make double or triple the money, depending on the business plan and our ability to actually execute it. So I don't value the money as much as a lot of people do in the space.
0: That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty straightforward right there, you know, putting the money to work so it's not going to come in as valuable as it is for someone like you with all of that experience is what I'm understanding here. So, um, you know, you started with your good friend as well. Like, how does that, like, have you, like from any of you, like, did you ever have that experience where that friendship has been affected? Like, because you went into business or, oh, okay. So yeah, because my take on it is let's do business and then we become friends. Like that's sort of where my my mindset is, so can you take us through some of your challenges to kind of make make it as realistic as we can you know for for the listeners that are wondering you know do I go and, and talk to my friends, my family, and you know get them to to do business with me so maybe have have you uh Brian share your experience and then Chris because I saw yeah. you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I started the business with with two other partners and now I have one. So um, I think to Chris's observation, we all went into it with great intentions and we were all professionals, but we learned um, through, you know, over time that our one partner was working, you know, two other gigs. And in this business, unless you're, you know, fully focused. It's hard enough to do it if you are fully engaged to execute appropriately and to to not only do the deals, but to run the small business that you're trying to start, which is your operating company, your platform. And he just wasn't focused enough. And we had a project that went sideways because of that. And we had to part ways with him. And it was very difficult and unfortunate. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drama involved, as you can imagine. So, I'd be very cautious about going into this type of arrangement with somebody that you value their friendship because money does strange things to people. And, um, you know, especially in a scenario where you are taking on LPs, limited partner investors, you are a fiduciary to them and you yeah. have to act as a fiduciary in their best best interest. Now that doesn't mean you're going to hit home runs all day and you will have some failures and deals that go wrong, but If you can look that LP in the eye and say, I was cranking away at this 12, 15 hours a day. This is the only thing I was doing. We tried our best. XYZ happened. No one will begrudge you that. But once they discover that, what do you mean you were working two or three other side hustles or you also kept your day job and you were trying to moonlight as this. That's where you get into some pretty muddy waters, in my opinion.
0: How did you handle the exit of that? Like what would be your advice as far as covering the, the le- legal uh, structure so that you have an exit in case it does turn sour? That, so that yeah. it um, you know, it's a win-win, but it's a, a lose-lose as well, if you have to go to, to that battle. What, what was yeah? You-
2: I mean, my, my best advice would be, and litigators will tell you this, when they get you know, a lawsuit amongst business partners, it was always a screw up on the front end both in terms of how it was papered by the corporate folks, but also just not being transparent with one another's business partners. Okay. So the best way to avoid one of these fallouts is to just be brutally transparent and honest and open and vulnerable on the front end because it will save you a lot of brain damage, time and money on the back end. So there's a lot of ways that this can fall out. Some of them can be pretty smooth. Others can be really ugly. But for the most part, they can all be prevented on the front end.
0: So just making sure you have, you have the contract written out, what the what's in there. The
2: yeah, that it's papered correctly, and that you're just being honest with each other and honest with yourself.
0: What's your take, Chris? Yeah, so your I, lesson?
3: I, I, that uh, Brian just said, I had a former business about a while back now ago with uh, two childhood friends, and. Uh, they wanted out. I wanted to stay in. So I got other like-minded investors. They were going to, uh, uh, so I was going to, uh, we were going to pay for the business. Um, in the contract terms, uh, the new partners wanted uh, in writing, uh, because we all had different roles in the business. I was in charge of sales. So I knew that. I did not know the back end or the IT. The, my other partner was going to, a new partner was going to take over the the background and the IT part but he wanted it in writing that they would give us six months of training for the it part training that I couldn't provide because I didn't do that. I did sales and they didn't want to put that line item in the contract, um, which was crazy. So, uh, uh, so the new partners are like, well, you know, we're not going to do it. So, uh, so that deal crumbled and they thought I was trying to under, cut them and steal the business from them, which I wasn't. I wanted the business to be a success, but, you know, I know contracts and I know like you can't, the the word of mouth while it's good and stuff like that, things have to be in writing and they didn't understand that. So, um, so I left, I left and we restarted all, uh, uh, like from scratch again. And they thought I stole the IP and all the rest of the stuff. I didn't, I didn't even do, I didn't do anything. I got all brand new uh, programs made with new, separate software designers and I started anew. So, uh, but they still don't see it that way. So, but then that cost them uh, several thousands of dollars because then th- that business is dissolved. So, because they didn't understand that contracts uh, and uh, things have to be in writing. So uh, one of the ways now I prevent that is, so let's say Brian and Jerome and I were going to partner up. We, we would sit down for coffee, beer, something like that. We'd structure hey, this is how I see the, the, the world and um, a and realignment and then we just like Brian said, okay, uh, we're in alignment. Now I go get my lawyer. he go gets he has his lawyer. we come to a mutual ground. we sketch out and specifically in writing. Um, so uh, so what would happen if because uh, the other thing too is sometimes, let's say Brian gets married and his wife sees things different and then his views change and things like that. Um, you have to protect yourself in those ways. Um, so if everybody right from the very, very beginning, sees the world one way, everybody's rowing that boat toward that way. And so let's, when somebody goes, you know, we get a terrible wave, that's going to come splash in that boat. Everybody can revert back to that contract because it's there in writing.
0: And, and how 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 deep can can a contract? I'm just curious, Brian. Like, can you just write it? Like, is it binding if you just wrote it in a piece of paper? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, I think that's definitely best practice. And the analogy I would use is, you know, when when you enter when you're trying to when you're about to get married, and you want to enter into an antenuptial or a prenuptial agreement,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: one party pushes back and says, "We love each other. We don't need to do this." when there's money at stake and resources in play, and you're looking at a long-term relationship, my opinion is if you're not mature enough to have a conversation about finances and about entering into a contract, you're probably not mature enough to enter into that relationship. And I okay. think that involves marriage as, as well as business, because they're very similar in a lot of ways. And if, if you just have one, if you have one attorney representing the entity that you are starting to conduct the business, that lawyer is going to represent that entity. They're not gonna represent Jerome or Chris or or Brian. And so it is best practice to have somebody create the entity, start a document, and then each individual person has their own independent non-conflict representation advocating for your rights in that document. And I think it's a very healthy conversation as well to have, because you realize where people's pain points are or their pressure points are, or their sensitivities are. And if you can't negotiate that contract on the front end, just think about five years into the deal when you need to make some really difficult decisions as a group, those dynamics are only gonna be amplified. And so I think it's a very healthy exercise. And if you can't get to a document that everyone can agree on to sign, you probably shouldn't be in business together.
3: Yeah, you should run away.
2: Yeah, 100%, it'll save you a lot of time and money. Yeah.
0: Have you had that issue, uh, Jerome? Because I know you said you didn't. But take us through that.
1: No. Um, I think it's more based on the track record piece of it. I've watched these folks for however long do what they've been doing. And we haven't gotten to a place where we had to make a decision that we couldn't overcome. And I think what Brian and Chris are saying about what's on paper matters. Um, We always set up and so I'm divorced, right? And I think that's the worst business partnership you can have break up. I think it probably costs more money than anyone ever imagines. Um, But, you know, when we go into these deals, we want to pretend like we'd be settling this with perfect strangers because the fact of the matter is you aren't getting a divorce or breaking up a business partnership because everything stayed the same and people were putting in the effort necessary for the business to be successful. And when you approach it from that standpoint, uh, people's eyes get wide open and you're having a real conversation about what's really on the table and what you can lose if you don't do the work that's necessary. And I just for my partners and the things that we've done, we've been more interested in maintaining our relationship than figuring out the money piece. I'm in fact the only person that's full-time in the real estate and everybody else is augmenting it with something else. And so a lot of the decision and direction is based on what I think is probably the right way to go with them tweaking it and making sure that we mitigated things that I might not be able to see because I'm in the woods and they're on the outskirts kind of giving me GPS directions or smoke signals.
0: Well, since you, I mean, we're talking about relationships, since you guys kind of mentioned that, how do you, for someone that's totally like new to this, how do you protect yourself, contract legal stuff? Let's take it there. Like you mentioned your divorce. So how how was that impactful? Was it more on the emotional or was it half-half like, you know, the financial aspect of it got really involved and, and was affected? Um, and then my other question would be, if you're going into these partnerships, how do you, Brian, like how would you, from, you know, being an attorney, how do you then set that up uh, contractually to actually protect? I mean, aside from asset protection, which is setting up your entities, et cetera, but more on the, the conversation with your future wife or your relationship, or even your current relationship and saying, hey, I'm going into new deals and new partnerships. I just wanna let you know, this is what I'm doing. But how do, you, how, how do you separate, but how do you also connect that so that your spouse or your future relationship is going to be on board with that? Because that's what I'm seeing, like I'm married. so And, and, and you know, with my husband, he does his own consulting so we're like in this you know, tech, whatever you want to call it. And so a lot of times he's being offered joint venture partnerships. And I'm like the first one to go, whoa, 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 whoa wait, because I already know they want something from him. But then again, it's like time is, is the price, right? So as a wife, I'm telling him we have dynamics because I'm full-time in real estate. So it's like, how do you do that? And then you're looking at how do you protect that once you go into these partnerships. So share your, your take, guys, because this is really, I think it's an, it's an important topic for women to also understand, because as you can see, I'm in a predominantly right, male-driven space. And so I have a lot of women now talking to me and saying, well, you know what, I'm planning to get married, my fiance, but then, you know, hey, I'm, I'm you know going through a divorce. Like I have a friend that's going through a divorce. She didn't know anything that her husband was doing this, this, this. So I was like, oh my gosh, like that's like a wake up call for people, whatever it is, starting a business, starting, you know, a syndication, going into whatever business, I think in general. So what would be your take, uh, Brian, from that legal standpoint, like how to approach that for women, men, relationship, post-relationship?
2: Yeah, so the operating agreement or whatever the the um, legal entity is that you are creating and running, it needs to um, dictate a protocol and a cadence and a structure around death, divorce, and disability. And um, it could be a business divorce, right, uh, where one partner wants to exit the partnership. There needs to be you know probably a, a put call provision or some way that that person can you know retract themselves from the day-to-day operations because things happen um, and so that document needs to um, you know be able to address those three main things and you know you're entering into a partnership with Brian but not necessarily my wife right so there are provisions in all of our agreements that if I am you know, to pass away or become disabled or want to exit the business, it's not her stepping into my shoes. The partnership will essentially buy me out um, in some form or fashion to allow her to be able to go on her way and the partnership to continue on doing its business. And so that's typically how it's addressed.
0: Right, right. Which is, you know, separating you from the relationship. And there's not- a
2: there, there's a reason lawyers are pessimistic by nature because they really are high priced plumbers in a lot of way. People come to them when there's a problem. Yeah. People don't people don't refer to operating agreements when the when the business is great. Everyone's making a ton of money and the deals are awesome. Like that's not when you go to section seven point two and you say this that and the other. It's when things go bad, and so you need to have a document that, um, you know has a mindset of a pessimistic outlook on life because that's when you're going to have to refer to the paper itself.
0: That's a good point. I mean, what's your, what's your take, uh, Jerome? I'm curious on that. Um, you know, with going through that divorce, did you lay everything out? The framework was, was mutual in that sense? Uh, you know, kind of instilling confidence in those that are going into relationships and, and real estate and business ventures.
1: I think the best thing I could have done was get a prenup or operating agreement to decide if this didn't work, how it would, everything would be split up. And people say, oh, well, that's not romantic. And if you're planning on it falling apart, then blah, 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 blah. But the reality of the situation is you can end up talking real dollars. And depending on how angry a person is when that situation happens, they forget that you guys had, that romance and you worked hard to create things and they may feel more entitled to things than maybe they actually deserve because of their contribution. And I may get ostracized for some of these unpopular views, but I mean, that's the reality of the situation. I think we know that these business partners or partnerships are gonna end at some point, whether it's through divesting the property or the partnership failing. And you absolutely need to have something in place to take care of it in case it does, and then do everything you can to make sure that it doesn't. And I think the biggest thing that you can do to make sure that it doesn't is communicate. But every relationship that I know that falls apart happens when people stop talking. They either assume that there's some malice in people's actions, or they're making decisions without taking proper counsel, or, but whatever it is, it just comes back to communication, everybody feeling like they're being heard, and then, creating a joint vision for what the future is and then walking down that path. And it's a disaster when you stop talking. And that's when you have to go back to the paper, right? The contract lays it all out the, or the operating agreement or whatever you want to call it, it lays it all out. This is what we're going to do if it doesn't work. And this is how we proceed because, and I think this is the last thing I'll say when you end up in a stalemate, you're trapped, and if you can't force any movement because people can't get an agreement or alignment and I think Brian raised this point earlier then the business is going to fail and now you're talking about financial ruin especially if it's a recourse loan yes. and i don't think anybody wants that opportunity to happen
0: so really it's advisable to have you know an attorney or your own legal counsel as you go into you know, these deals and business ventures, married or not, uh, definitely, you know, have that operating agreement or the initial agreement to align and see to it that everybody that's in the team. Just last, you know, last thing, what would be the best way to look at as far as how many people in that joint venture? You know, do you want to keep it simple or is it open to as many people, aside from the syndication, I'm just you know, trying to figure out like, is it ideal to have 10 people or is it really case by case for those that are interested to, to understand what joint venturing looks like?
1: I don't think you can legitimately say you're doing a joint venture with 10 people. It's just not enough work to go around, especially if you have third party property management. Uh, what I will say is you probably wanna do it with as few people as possible. We have a initiative mission goal of bringing a new person into the space every time we do a deal. And so in that situation, we may have somebody who has overlapping skill sets with other people that are already in the project, but because we want to create more operators that can go do their own deal, even if they choose not to, uh, we think about it in that way. And so I say as few as possible with the caveat that if you've got some other mission that's kind of guiding your actions, that there may be some people that pop in that traditionally wouldn't be invited. And I'll, again, fall on this forward with, with my missteps, right? My, my first deal, I had a guy tell me that he was going to buy the deal that I wanted to buy. And I begged him to include me in the deal. And he asked what I was bringing to the table and I couldn't articulate that in a way that made sense for him. And so he went and tried to buy it without me. Eventually, I was able to get in that deal and we got it close. and that was how I got my experience box checked. But the fact of the matter was I couldn't tell him what I was going to bring to the table. And because I didn't do that well, I was going to be sitting on the sidelines Has somebody else not spoken up on my behalf.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. This is such an interesting topic because you could literally get lost talking about this and you know any last words Chris and Brian based on what Jerome said you know as little as possible going into a group of expertise in a team in a partnership what would be your last uh, words in conclusion to this uh, open conversation and joint ventures and syndication and beyond
3: I think one has to be alignment from, uh, from a lot of different ways, uh, from, uh, uh the way one lives its life is, is first off, I think what Jerome was saying, right. So, uh, and I, I, I'm from that, uh, school of thought as well. So I don't want people that are always trying to, uh, nickel and dime people to death. I, I don't want to do that. I want the people that I'm working with to make money. I can make money. They can make money. I'm not going to, you know, haggle every little uh, price down for, you know, an electrician, a contractor and stuff like that, because I want good, strong business relationships. So when I'm in need, they come, right? So it's okay. If they're charging me X, I'll pay. I always just pay it. Right. Do I question it? Sure. And if it's crazy high, I'll be like, Hey, w- you know, why is that? Right. And then, uh, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the weeds with somebody who's, who's always looking to just take money, take money, take money and never give. And part of uh, uh, the one thing that I I really strive on, too, is uh, the one element that people forget when they're doing apartment uh, investing is they have to be kind to the people, the residents. So because if they're not, it's going to be a short term, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be a short term career because we're not dealing with the widgets. You have to be kind to the people and if you're not kind to the people even when things are really bad in their lives and we all get these crazy tenants and things like that so that's another subject but for the most part you know most of your residents are very nice and if they go through some bad times and if you can help them through those bad times everyone can make money and uh it's really to help them because you know they've helped you all these x amount of years by you know repaying your paying the rent instead of like so if we look at it, it's, it's almost like a, a teamwork, right? They're on our team. We're here, there to support them in times of crisis. As long as they come to us and let us know, we'll work with them to make it really well, to be a, kind of like a, a leg on their table so they know they, we can support them because they've supported us for X amount of years. That, that's kind of the basis point um, of how um, if people don't see it that way, and, and I, a lot of people don't this is a business, you know, I want X, Y, and B, Z, that's, that's great. It's just not the way I do business. So I, I kind of see, see it that way. And I want my partners to see it that way too. And if they don't, we can come with a happy medium, but um, it, it, I always got to have the person within the, uh, the business as well, because I think too many times that's left out.
0: No, I, I so appreciated that from you from the get go. What about you, Brian, in, in closing, of, you know, your, your take on, you know, just the, the overall, um, alignment, the holistic approach, if I may call it that way, um, you know, how you put together the team, what is the one thing that you have found successful in your operations, in your business?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I can talk about the successes, but I can talk about the failures and maybe help people just figure out what not to do is is probably more productive. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions about this business is that it's all about the real estate deals themselves. Whereas the truth is you are starting a small business enterprise and you're taking a whole lot of startup risk associated with that small business that really has nothing to do with the underlying real estate deals themselves. They obviously need to work together, but they're two different risk profiles and you can do a lot on this side of the house to scale down that risk profile by having really good legal representation, um, having the alignment of interest amongst the GP, whether it be, you know, two people that are the partners or a joint venture like Jerome uh, was talking about. It really doesn't matter what that structure looks like, but there's a lot you can do from an infrastructure standpoint to take the risk off the table there. Um, and then you can focus on the real estate deals themselves, but it's really hand in glove. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I'll just go find some good deals and we'll run them and it'll be great. That just... I don't think it's a recipe for success long-term. Um, so I would really think about it as kind of two, um, uh, two uh businesses that have to work together. And there's a lot you can do on the front end um, for the small business startup component of it beyond just the real estate aspect of it.
0: Well said, well said. Well, there's many more conversations like this, but for today, I think this, you know, This is definitely a healthy, open conversation. Appreciated all of you for participating, for taking the time. And uh, for those that, you know, um, just, you know, hearing this for the first time, I think it's, uh, it's very insightful because like you guys are saying is that it's not just about business and real estate. There's a lot of alignment. There's that, you know, core value that we have to always consider and bringing on the people that you can definitely have transparent conversations and honesty and making sure we're aligning and creating impact. So, once again, thank you so much for for joining me. And there you have it. That was a very insightful but also really interesting conversation with three different people, three different experiences, and it was an unbelievable opportunity for me to listen and just process everything because we could have continued on on this episode, but that would take many, many hours to cover this topic. So we all hope that we have somehow opened this conversation and for you to be able to think about even more those questions and how you're going to structure your next venture, your next deal, and launching into this real estate investing industry in today's time and this new decade. And as I've said, it doesn't matter what province city state country you are in, you're welcome to connect with all of us and you can actually find us on LinkedIn, actively posting and engaging with all of our connections. And of course, if you have any questions or would like to leave your comments, I would love to hear from you. This is the very reason why this podcast is a success at Launch Your Wealth. Until the next episode, I will see you then.